Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. Because of COVID-19 and we could not see folks in person, even those that were reluctant suddenly got to experience consumer-based telemedicines or telehealth solutions and say, oh, this really is effortless. It hurt because everybody started saying telehealth and telemedicine, which confused the whole organization and the whole industry as to what is actually telehealth and telemedicine. for joining us on This Week Health Keynote. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to our keynote show sponsors, Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris, and Veritas for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Today on This Week Health, I'm on vacation, hanging out with my family for a few days. I still wanted to provide some new content to you. So we kicked off This Week Health Community, our newest podcast with a show called Town Hall earlier this year. This is an interview by health IT leaders and practitioners of practitioners. And today I give you a little highlight reel. Town Hall is now one of my favorite podcasts. We have seven great guest hosts and we are in the process of adding two more to that list just from conversations I've had in the last two days. So far, we have Reed Stephan, CIO for St. Luke's out of Boise, Idaho. We have Jake Lancaster, CIO of Baptist Memorial in Tennessee. Brett Oliver, CMIO Baptist in Kentucky. Craig Richardville, CIO in Mountain. Lee Milligan, CIO for Asante. Actually, he just left. Asante is going to a new role. When he's ready to announce it, I will let you know where he's going. Mark Weissman, CIO for Title Health and Sue Shade, principal at Starbridge Advisors. These are our phenomenal guest hosts. I'm really excited that they have decided to be a part of this. And in today's clips, you're only going to hear from four of them, as some of them recently joined us as hosts. So we're going to showcase them later on in the year, probably in the next highlight show. So, all right, that's enough setup. Let's just get to it. In the first clip, we have a great interview. Lee Milligan interviewed Mark Stockwell, who's also with Asante, and they talk about data governance and specifically the framework for setting up and launching great data governance. So here you go, our first clip. I want to pivot a little bit to your work in data governance. I kind of glossed over this with a single sentence, but you did stand up and create arguably one of the best data governance programs that I know of. And of course, I'm very biased because I yeah. <laughs> got a chance to partner with you and be part of it. But the reality is a lot of this work was non-technical. It was procedural and policy-driven and accountability-driven across the organization, not just EHR databases. Can you talk a little bit about when you first came on board, what the framework was that we put in place for you to initially do investigation and discovery yeah. and to research that, and then kind of what you ultimately were able to put in place here at Asante? You were a part of this since the beginning. We did have a first attempt, right, at data governance, and, and largely stemming from the fact that we were going to start to ingest additional information from outside the system. We were going to start to share more data outside the system, and we really had concerns about 
how certain are we of the quality of the information we were going to share, the data we were going to share. And that prompted us to think about governance as a structure we needed to have in place in order to ensure we could deliver quality data and manage the receipt of quality data. So our first attempt was largely academic, and we learned from that experience as you were a part of that original team. But then following that, when you and I got together to talk further about how we would do this again, I think one of the smartest things we did was to spend some time really researching and understanding what we wanted to get out of data governance. It's a big domain. If you were were to go out and look at the internet and search on data governance, you'll find any number of models with any number of elements that are supporting data governance. But at the end of the day, when we did our research and spent some quality time doing that research and talking to people, talking to other healthcare systems, other governance organizations outside of healthcare, we came to the conclusion that really we needed to focus on just a few things. Without the size of the system we have, we really only needed to focus on a few things. And we identified these as our pillars and they really around us around accountability for data assets across the enterprise, the proper use of our data assets within and outside of the enterprise, quality, the core elements of quality for data, and lastly, movement, right? Because there's a risk both in and outbound with data coming in and out of the system. Yeah, you're going to hear more from Lee later on in the show. Our next clip, though, is Reed Stefan, who is the, as I said, VP CIO for St. Luke's Health. And in this clip, he interviews Todd Dunn, the Vice President of Innovation for Atrium Health. And I like this for a lot of reasons. One is when I talked to Reed about doing this, he said, yeah, so I'm very busy, got a lot going on. Why should I do this? And I said, each of us should invest time in our network. And if you do this, it gives you an opportunity to interview people from your network, people you know, and you just want to ask them a few more questions. And in the process, you get to give back to the community. And recently I was talking to Reed and he's like, you know what? I am so glad you asked me to do this. This has been phenomenal. I've had great conversations and you're going to hear one right here. In this, Reed and Todd end up talking about foundational principles in innovation. So here you go, Reed Stefan and Todd Dunn. You and I, as we've talked over the years, you often advocate that culture is the essential element of innovation. What Mm -hmm. advice would you offer someone who's trying to create a culture of innovation at their workplace? I often say that empathy is the heartbeat of healthcare. Then I also think it is when married with curiosity, the two foundational principles of great innovation. So I think you have to create a servant leadership mindset in your organization where your leaders truly care about the people who they serve as their boss or manager. And I think that that is not an adjective, that is a verb. What does it look like? Does it look like taking time and understanding people? Because that creates a safe space for people to do the second thing really well, and that's to be curious. And In my opinion, curiosity is embodied in the shape of a question, really engaging people in active dialogues that tells them that their voice is really appreciated. The question really sparks everything. And I would say that the behavior expectation that I think is necessary in the leadership ranks is every time a meeting, have the leader ask about the consumer, if the consumer is the nursing team. And and in turn, sit and listen and encourage the team to ask a lot of questions. We do question bursts, we do assumption bursts, we do some of these activities, but I think those are it. 
read it because if you don't have those, all the tools and the language and the methods are just kind of window dressing. And the curiosity thing just changes the world. But if you don't allow people to safely be curious because you're empathetic towards what they're struggling with, you're going to have a hard time being a great innovation company. Fantastic. Here's another great insight. We have Jake Lancaster, again, CMIO for Baptist Memorial out of Tennessee. And in this interview, he talks to Matthew Sakamoto, virtualist and clinical informaticist uh, and physician champion at Sutter Health. Again, I love this cross-pollination that's happening and the conversation. Little known fact about Jake Lancaster, he has done podcasts before. So he is a natural to step in and start doing this hosting. In this conversation, they talk about hybrid care coordination through virtual primary health care and how to create that environment and that coordination that works for the provider and for the patient. So here you go, Jake Lancaster and Matthew Sakamoto. Everybody knows that at the beginning of the pandemic, telemedicine really exploded. It was obviously here before then, but it exploded in a huge way during the pandemic. But virtual primary care is a little bit different than just your average telemedicine visit for maybe an acute problem like urgent care. Tell us what you mean by virtual primary care. Yeah, for sure. And I, I make a specific point to say virtual primary care and virtual care, not specifically telehealth. Because I, I that to me, most people, when they hear telehealth, they tend to think of a video visit, maybe a telephone call. The virtual primary care part, in the same way that primary care spans the care continuum, virtual care as well. So I, I always include in that like that asynchronous messaging, so you know, texting kind of things that are you know, through a patient portal. Because I think that really does, that's part of the glue that keeps it together. So for me, virtual primary care, it's the same. It's I have patients, I provide their, for their chronic care needs, as well as kind of any urgent stuff that comes up and all the care coordination that happens. That's the main thing is like, it, it's, it's a lot of the care coordination piece. And by virtualizing that, that one lets you look across your panel a little bit easier. And then two, and I think this is the biggest piece, is it really helps turn the primary care team, not just on the primary care physician, but actually the whole primary care team. So I, I work with a nurse practitioner and a nurse that help manage this panel. And by virtualizing a lot of the care, they can jump in and help and things can happen in parallel. You don't have to stack up eight to 25 visits in a day. Yeah, sure. And do you see all of your patients 100% virtual or do you have any in-person visits as well? We have a virtual first, but a hybrid model. So 80% of the time I'm doing either video visits, phone calls or messaging with the patients. I have a reserve day in clinic for patients in my region that I can see in person. And there are things that you know have to be done. Vaccines need to be delivered in person certain physical exam things, and even patients that don't necessarily need a physical exam, but are pretty complex, I'll have them come in and we'll talk. So I don't think we lose that personal touch at all. And having that hybrid ability is helpful. And the other nice thing is that we can take care of a lot of the easy med refill, med reconciliation things before the visit, even days before the visit. So the time spent in person in the clinic is really high yield time. We'll get back to our show in just a minute. We have a couple of webinars coming up, and I don't like webinars. I think they are oversaturated at this point, and I think a lot of them are not all that good. And so that's why I think I'm the perfect person to put together webinars for you. I make sure that we have great topics. I validate them with CIOs. I make sure we have great guests, and I make sure that we actually plan ahead and we actually spend time together before the actual webinar. So it's not just spur of the moment stuff, but we make sure we identify the things that we should talk about in those webinars. And we even collect questions from you ahead of the webinar so that we can make sure to talk about the things that you 
want to talk about. So let me tell you a little bit about the two webinars we have coming up. There's a global survey that we talked about on the Today Show. A thousand cybersecurity professionals found that 30% plan to change professions within two or more years. And cybersecurity threats are growing. And, you know, quite frankly, we need to make sure that we recruit, retain, and optimize our staff so that they can be our front line. And so the first webinar we're doing is how's your front line recruit, retain, and optimize your cybersecurity team. And we're going to talk to experts from Christiana Care and Seattle Children's and Semperus about their thoughts on this exit of security professionals and what you can do to stay ahead of that. You can join us August 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern time, and you can register right on our homepage, thisweekhealth.com. On the top right-hand side, you're going to have the two upcoming webinars. You can go ahead and click on those. Again, that is August 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. The next one, we're going to talk about ransomware, but I've seen a lot of different ransomware webinars. I love this one. The topic we came up with is don't pay the ransom. And Rubric is bringing together some great leaders from Thomas Jefferson University and St. Luke's University Health System and, and Rubric themselves. And we're going to discuss solutions around protecting all of your healthcare data, especially as you're moving to the cloud. And specifically, we're also going to talk about Epic Backup in Azure and what Rubric is doing around that. That webinar is going to be on Thursday, August 18th at 1 p.m. You can register for both of them. Just go to our homepage, thisweekhealth.com. Upper right-hand corner, you're going to see both of the graphics for those. Click on the one you want to attend, fill out the form, and we will see you then. Now back to our show. In our next clip, we have Dr. Brett Oliver, CMIO, Baptist Health out of Kentucky, and he interviews Andy Truscott, global health technology lead at Accenture. And Brent has been a phenomenal friend of the show and really appreciate him coming on the show multiple times. He is doing work in DC. He's doing, I mean, he's doing so much stuff. I really appreciate him putting some time aside for this. And he has captured some great conversations. In this one, they talk about how to make health IT projects less burdensome on the clinicians. So here you go, Brent Oliver and Andy Truscott with Accenture. If someone comes to me with a new algorithm and says, Brett, I think this could really help in the care of your pneumonia patients or your diabetic patients, the amount of due diligence I have to do because of the investment of time and resources to get that live in our system and using the patients is tremendous. There has to be a way that we can, I don't even know what the correct term is, platformatize. I just made one up right there, where I can have a platform that I've already vetted. I vet once, I vet annually, whatever it might be. I'm connected there and I can plug Andy's new diabetic algorithm in there, try it out for three months, see where my patients land. And if the data holds true for them, I'm just curious to your thoughts on just sort of this platform approach and if there's other solutions to that from a technical perspective to get around it. So I'm ignoring the argument between is it AI or is it complex rule processing? Fair okay. enough. Fair. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. But um, so I, I kind of ask you the question what would you trust? I would trust something that I could try. Let's say it's with, let's say Andy Truscott's got a brand new platform, your company, and I connected to that. I vetted it. My relationship is with you and your company. Yeah. That's where the trust comes in. And then you have a basic level of vetting that you do with any company that comes with their machine learning what algorithm, their AI, whatever it might be. And I, I still want to do my own vetting, 
But from a technical perspective, I don't have a new project. You do. You figured that out. And so my vetting from a clinical perspective can actually be done, whether it's in the background or live in production with my own patients. Does that make sense? I understand what you're saying, but why would you want to vet something with production patients when you're trying to provide them the best care you can? This is still untrusted. You you haven't proven it yet. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying, I would run it on production patients, but in the background. It wouldn't be presenting to clinicians. You you have enough time to run things in parallel. Correct. It's certainly better than doing a six to nine month project only to find out this isn't working. I would like to have three months where I could easily connect. There really wasn't much of an IT project determine that, yeah, this is great or this is not great because it's with my own data. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I understand that point. The major question in my mind is actually providers who are able to run these things in parallel, okay? Because there is a time overhead from doing it, and that, and that always causes me concern because we don't, you know, providers have more than enough things to do with their day without experimenting with the, the stuff that I've come oh, no. up No, no, but, no, yeah. But something, something we're doing, we are doing right now is with one of the platforms we have inside Accenture, our health and human insights indicators and models, we're actually embedded inside it. So when you're cutting and slicing patient data, it shows you a diabetes score and a diabetes risk score, okay? Whether or not you ask for it, it's just sitting there in the corner and you can choose to pay attention just like you would any other clinical decision support. And I think that's probably a good approach for getting adoption of some of these new quote-unquote AI-type algorithms is actually there are existing clinical decision support channels out there. There are existing ways by which we can display risk information around patients on whatever dimension. And we are trying to develop new ones as well around especially things like social determinants of health, but also around other clinical risk, et cetera, as new models come out. So augmenting that, but making it more accessible. And there's some great examples from around the world in that kind of risk data is made more accessible. Fantastic. I said I would get back to Lee Milligan, and here he is again with another clip. And the thing I like about this, Lee was the CIO for Asante Health, and he chose to go a little different path. He chose to interview the people from within his organization and to highlight the great work that they were doing and give them a little exposure to the outside world. And also, to be honest with you, it was a great mentoring opportunity for him in the discussions I've had with him. He really appreciated that opportunity. So in this interview, Dr. Milligan talks to Allison Graffis, Manager of Clinical Informatics and Training at Asante. And it's really an interesting clip here because they talk about a one-hour call results in 104 hours a year saved from one clinician's time. So again, excellent insights. Here you go, Dr. Milligan and Allison Graffis. Here you go. One of your staff recently spent one hour with one provider and it was a positive impact. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so one of my staff members reached out and we have what's called signal reports in Epic. So it's a way to look at how productive and efficient providers are using Epic. So. This one staff member looked at it, studied it, found a couple of areas and was able to get a one hour of dedicated time with this clinician. So this clinician was not seeing patients at the time, but just had a meeting scheduled in her office. So she went down there, met with her and we were able to save 28 minutes per day for this provider, but just on three different basic areas. 
I did follow up with this person as well, and she now has a second meeting set up with this provider to look at her notes to see how we can improve her timing on her notes. So it's a huge success. And I think if we can get engagement, it's just amazing what we can do to help ease some of the burden. And because I'm a nerd, I took those minutes saved per day, times by the number of potential days you're working a year, come up with 104 hours a year saved from a single hour of your staff's time in front of a clinician. That is so cool. All right, we're back to Jake Lancaster, CMIO Baptist Memorial Healthcare. And in this clip, he interviews Peter Hong, clinical fellow, clinical informatics and pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital. And what they end up talking about is how can health systems and centers carry app maintenance? This is no small task, and it's something that more and more health systems are doing and trying to figure out. So here you go, Jake Lancaster and Peter Hong. You alluded to this earlier when you were talking about how apps were maybe previously developed in individual departments. But in my experience at another academic center, we had a a similar issue where there was some independent app development that would occur and we'd have these legacy apps. And then the physician or whoever made the app would leave the organization. And then all of a sudden you had to pick up this code that nobody knew about and tried to maintain it over time. How is your group looking at making sure that they can maintain and, and keep up with these apps once they're out there? Yeah. Oh man, gosh. <laughs> we had the answer to that. I think we would be all set. We wouldn't need to look outside for uh, any vendor softwares. I, I think we had a similar experience to that, and I'm sure we're very much not alone in some of our applications being written by specialists with really deep domain knowledge and certain things that necessarily weren't uh easily fungible skill set. And uh, I think somewhat fortunately, I think a lot of people are working in this space and a lot of the different vendors and, and companies globally. So sometimes we have fortunately been in a situation where something starts to not work so much and we're at the point where it's harder to, and harder to keep putting patchwork onto an application when everything else around it is evolving rapidly. And at some point, with advocacy efforts or more research and I think publicity around the importance of you know, some of the different functionality in the electronic health record, particularly in, in pediatric needs, different vendors are catching up and able to provide some of that software. So we don't necessarily need to then go to redesign those applications from the ground up. And there seem to be ways that we can more seamlessly integrate that either from a vendor or a uh, company that works very closely with some of the vendors that we work with. Love that insight. So we're back to Brett Oliver. Brett Oliver, sometimes what goes on in this show kind of surprises me because again, I've handed over some of the control to these guest hosts and I trust them and they're doing a great job. And Brett Oliver reached out to Aaron Mary. So Aaron Mary is the chief digital and information officer at Baptist Health out of Jacksonville. And they ended up having a conversation. And the reason this surprised me is I did hour-long interviews with Aaron at least twice in the last two years. And he agreed to come on with Brett and have a conversation. The thing I love about this is you're going to get a completely different lens. You're going to get questions that come from a CMIO's perspective and from Brett's perspective. And it's going to be a much different conversation than, say, I would have with Aaron Mary, and this is what I love about this show. So in this clip, they talk about how has COVID and the use of telehealth affected the relationship between health IT and the clinician. So here you go, Aaron Mary and Dr. Brett Oliver. Do you find that the clinician's experience 
was good. And in the end, that's going to be a positive to what you were speaking of, the trust factor. Like, do you think COVID has helped that or, or hurt it? or dependent upon your organization? So I think it's all the above, be very honest with you. I think it's helped it in that it brought awareness to the importance that telehealth and telemedicine can be to an organization, both from a sustainability perspective as well as a clinical caregiving. A lot of physicians particularly had reservations before COVID about the efficacy of telemedicine. Completely understandable mindset of, let me just be safe and sorry, because I do believe clinicians go into this business because I truly want to help people. So to the degree of it, with that, that now relaxed, for lack of a better term, because of situational issues, right, COVID-19, and we could not see folks in person, even those that were reluctant suddenly got to experience consumer-based telemedicine or telehealth solutions and say, oh, this really is effortless. I think it helped in that situation. It hurt because everybody started saying telehealth and telemedicine, which confused the whole organization and the whole industry as to what is actually telehealth and telemedicine. What you're finding is a convergence in the industry of a lot of companies buying each other up. And what actually really is telehealth and telemedicine is very different than what it may have been in 2020 because people now have an awareness to it. So that's how it hurt. And then I would say, depending on organization, which is if you had the finances to dabble and try different solutions, you're in a much better position. But a lot of FQHCs or hospitals with basically no margin had to wing it, right? I'm not entirely sure you know, what you look like now, if you never had the ability to sort of double down and say, I'm going to go in all in on this one tech, regardless of good or bad, and make it work for my workflows, because that's where it really hits the road. That's where it really happens is where is it in the course of care? Yeah, I see that a lot in the affiliated independent practices that we have throughout our state. I know you're getting tired of hearing it, but I just love that. And we have come to our final clip. And here you go, Reed Steffen, again, from St. Luke's out of Boise, Idaho. And in this clip, he's talking to Kerry Lichen, head of industry and healthcare at Yext, Y-E-X-T company, interesting company to look at. And in this clip, we have data interoperability and why it's important in 2022 and how can organizations prepare for what's coming down the pike. So here you go. We have Kerry Lichen and Reed Steffen to close us out. You recently talked about your predictions for healthcare in 2022. And one of those was that data interoperability will be more important than ever. What are the ways that you predict that that importance is going to manifest itself? And what can organizations do to be ready for that and to kind of proactively take the steps they need? Great question. What we saw over the last two years throughout the pandemic, there is this realization that a lot of different technologies didn't talk to one another. What we're going to start seeing over the next year, there will be these new ways that organizations are going to be able to tap into the availability of data to more robustly understand the patient's experience within healthcare. The second part of your question though, is how can organizations prepare? One is I think organizations and individuals need to have an open mind. Historically, what I see is that Organizations have been very risk averse and very security minded for very good cause, but very risk preventing. So the second recommendation I have is organizations need to push back. So what we found is that there are very large organizations, software platforms, electronic medical records, whatever we want to call it, within healthcare organizations right now who are really embedded. And they've built walls 
around their platform. Mm-hmm. If healthcare organizations can start collectively pushing back to try to open up those walls, that's really the only way that these larger organizations are going to have to acquiesce. There's so much rich information that is being held behind a wall that yeah. without a collective campaign to try to break down those walls, I don't think that interoperability will really be that successful. All right. That's it for our highlights of the town hall show. If you are thinking to yourself, you know what, Bill should consider me as a host. Shoot me a note, bill at thisweekhealth.com. Love to hear from you. And we can discuss that. See if it makes sense. The more people we add to the community, the stronger the discussion gets. And we just, we thrive on that. And we appreciate the dynamic of hearing the discussion and amplifying the best thinking so that everybody can benefit, especially healthcare. I really love this show. I love hearing from people on the front lines. I love hearing from these leaders. And we want to thank our hosts who continue to support the community by developing this great content. We want to thank our keynote sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Prescani, Sempris, and Veritas. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. 